0: Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's podcast, Gender and What Gets Researched. So how do scientists and inventors decide what to work on? Part of it comes down to what they find personally meaningful, and that in turn can be informed by your specific life experiences. And we can actually see this in the data if we look in the right places. Now, every human life is unique, but in this article we're going to collapse diverse life experiences down into something really crude, just binary gender. And this can be a useful exercise because, as we'll see in a minute, there's a variety of non-controversial strands of evidence that women are slightly more likely to work on some things than men. And this may well reflect different sort of perceptions on what questions are meaningful, and that's likely derived from lived experience. But this is also an exercise fraught with risks because there could be a variety of other factors that lead men and women to work on different topics. For example, it turns out that the share of scientists who are women differs a lot across fields. Over 1990 to 2011, a paper by West and co-authors from 2013 finds that 41% of published authors in sociology are women, compared to just 14% of authors in economics. Should we read this as evidence that different life experiences lead men and women to have different interests in sociology relative to economics? I don't think so, as there are lots of other possible barriers to entry in one field relative to another. It could be discrimination, bias, culture, access to sort of networks, and so on. But cognizant of these risks, we can still look at the choices people make within a sort of specific narrow field. Now, that won't completely rule out the possibility that the choices of research question are constrained by bias and discrimination, even within a specific subfield, but it's an informative place to start. So Koning, Samilla, and Ferguson, 2021, analyze a set of 400,000 U.S. biomedical patents from 1976 to 2010. For each patent, they classify the gender of the inventors based on their names, and they can match 98% of inventors with 95% confidence. Note that this is going to be a binary classification of gender, which they point out is not appropriate in all cases. They next run a sample of the text of these patents, Through an algorithm designed to classify academic articles into different biomedical categories. This algorithm classifies about 13% of patents as being related to female organs, diseases, physiologic processes, genetics, and so on. And another 13% are classified as being related to male analogs. They also cross check these classifications with a variety of alternative metrics, like are the patents classified as having a female focus? More likely to be based on all female clinical trials, are they more likely to be related to diseases that have much higher incidence in women than men? They find that patents where the majority of the inventors are men are more likely to patent male-focused patents, and patents where the majority of the inventors are women are more likely to patent female-focused patents. And they have a figure documenting this over time, showing that there's this gap that's you know maybe a percent or two uh, between the probability that an all or a male majority team works on a male focused patent versus a female focused one and the probability over time that a female majority team works on a male focused patent versus a female focused patent i feng and jaraval 2019 find something similar using a variety of other data sets so via nielsen data they've got information on a sample of households that purchase a wide range of specific consumer products as well as the barcode associated with each product. And they can link these barcodes back to the manufacturing firm, which they can then link to patents owned by these firms. And finally, they can use the same strategy as Koning, Samilla, and Ferguson to classify the inventors on these patents as men or women. That's going to let them draw a connection between the gender of inventors and the gender of the people purchasing products manufactured by the companies that own those patents. And they find, indeed, that products that are disproportionately purchased by female households also have a higher share of female inventors stepping away from patents they also use data from crunchbase to identify startups with female founders and then they use the same nielsen data to assess the gender of purchasers of these startups products and they find that startups with a female founder are also more likely to sell products with a disproportionately female consumer base and we can see a similar effect when we look at research papers Koning, Samilla, and Ferguson, 2021, also perform a similar exercise on biomedical science. Uh, They extract data on about 2 million biomedical research articles published between 2002 and 2020. And once again, they classify the authors as male or female based on their names. And they focus this analysis on original research, so not literature reviews and stuff, that's published in journals whose articles tend to be highly cited by patents. And that's because their original paper was focused on patents. In this case, there's no need to process these articles through some fancy machine learning algorithm to see if they focus on female or male related topics. That is, they pertain to maybe female or male organs, diseases, physiologic processes, genetics, and so on. And that's because these articles had already been classified into biomedical categories as part of the sort of general publication process. But anyway, again, they find articles with more women as authors are more likely to focus on female topics. And once again, the it's a, a couple percent is sort of the, uh, the increased probability that you get from having a majority or all female team relative to an all male team. Nielsen et al. 2017 looks at the influence of gender on biomedical research in a different way. Rather than seeing if papers are classified as pertaining to male or female biomedical categories, Nielsen and co authors look to see if the gender of the author affects the probability. P- uh, papers incorporate a gender and sex analysis, which is defined by them as scientific approaches that are aimed at understanding how social and behavioral differences between women, men, and gender-diverse people, that is, gender analysis, and biological differences between female and male research subjects, that is, sex analysis, relate to health outcomes. The Gender GenderMed dataset identifies about 5,000 papers published between 2008 and 2015 that incorporate one of these kinds of analyses. Over the same period, about 1.5 million papers were published on diseases for which such an analysis can be relevant, so a gender and sex analysis is, you know, actually a pretty rare event in this paper, three in a thousand papers. Nonetheless, Nielsen and co-authors find papers with more women co-authors were more likely to include such an analysis even within a specific disease category and a, a specific country. Now, these differences are never huge, but they are persistent across quite a range of evidence. And it seems to me pretty likely this reflects either a relative lack of awareness or a relative lack of empathy by male scientists and inventors about the importance of these issues. That, in turn, supplies one reason why representation in science is important. If we want research to broadly reflect the priorities of society at large, and if a part of society is not represented in the research space, well, the above evidence suggests we're not going to get the kind of research we want. That's a first order effect. If you want research related to a specific group, the chances of getting it may be higher if that group is able to participate in the research process. But there's also a second-order effect. We also have some evidence that as representation improves, everyone's research priorities shift. For example, let's look again at the probability a majority male inventor team works on a female-focused biomedical patent compared to the probability they work on a male-focused one. The gap between those two has been closing between 1980 and and 2010. Meanwhile, the number of female inventors has been rising over this period, and maybe that's increasing male awareness of sort of female-focused research. Nielsen et al., 2017, also looks beyond the impact of just female co-authorship to the broader effect of more women in a particular subfield. And they find that when there are more women studying a particular disease, this also increases the probability that studies include a gender and sex analysis independent of the composition of the team of co-authors on any individual study. So in other words, a team of men is more likely to include a gender and sex analysis if they're working on a disease where more of the scientists studying that disease are women. Well, maybe that's because as women attain positions of influence, for example, serving as peer reviewers, grant reviewers, PhD supervisors, etc., the rest of the field becomes more responsive to their concerns, As discussed in another post, uh, Conservatism and Science, we do have evidence that scientists constrain the feasible choice of research topics for their peers through a variety of channels like this. But it could also be that people's awareness and empathy can change when they're around people just different from themselves. Now, it's tough to experimentally vary awareness and empathy, but there's an interesting 2021 dissertation paper by Trufa and Wong that looks at a situation that has sort of parallels to this. Between 1960 and 1990, 76 all male U.S. universities went co ed and they began to admit women as undergraduates. Trufan Wong looked to see what happens to the research of these universities before and after they make that switch. Now they identify all the academic papers using the Microsoft academic graph. They identify all the academic papers with authors affiliated with these universities and then they classify papers as being related to gender if the title or abstract includes various keywords, like lady female misogyny mothers sexism there's a whole list note that this approach is going to cover all fields we're not just talking about biomedical or life sciences anymore a manual inspection of a hundred random papers that they identify as being gender related by these keywords finds that the method works pretty well there's only about eight percent of the papers identified that aren't really related to gender and they also get similarly encouraging results Uh, When they benchmark this against some other techniques like training a machine learning algorithm on gender studies papers or papers in gender related journals or focusing on the biomedical stuff and comparing it to the classification systems we discussed earlier. Now, when these universities began to admit women, they also began to produce more research related to gender. The effect is small in absolute terms, you know, an extra 0.25, 0.5 papers per year. But it's large relative to the pre-existing number of papers related to gender, which was just 2% in 1960 at these universities. So why does this happen? Well, it could have nothing to do with the changing composition of the undergraduates. Uh, Maybe these institutions had just decided to take gender more seriously, and that was reflected simultaneously in research and the choice of which students to admit. But and Wang argued the actual reason for the transition from all-male undergraduates to mixed wasn't really so high-minded. Instead, all-male schools found they were having a harder time attracting uh, what they call top boys who increasingly preferred to attend co-ed universities. So to continue attracting these top boys, uh, these institutions maybe grudgingly began to accept undergraduate women too. In other words, the decision to go co-ed doesn't seem to have been driven by faculty sort of itching to take gender more seriously in their research. So why did research begin to take gender more seriously after the schools went co-ed? Well, it could be that going co-ed was accompanied by increased hiring of women faculty, because as we've seen above, it wouldn't be that surprising that institutions that hire more women will end up getting more women-centered research. Trufun Wang do find that the share of new assistant professors who were women rose from about 13% to 17% after schools went co-ed. Uh, But the effect on overall research goes well beyond just these new hires. Instead, a large part of this effect seems to be driven by pre-existing faculty revising their research preferences. Even incumbent male professors were much more likely to do research related to gender after the undergraduate body included women. These effects were bigger at colleges that admitted more women after the change. Trufuan Wong also presents some evidence about a few very concrete channels through which these changes might've occurred. For example, the number of gender related classes significantly increased after colleges went co-ed and maybe in preparing and teaching these classes, faculty might've begun to engage more with these ideas. We don't know for sure. It's sort of, uh, circumstantial because we don't know who was teaching the classes back then. Uh, But we do know that schools that went more co-ed started teaching more of these classes. Second, undergraduates may sometimes participate in the research process. For example, in psychology research in this era, it was common to perform experiments using undergraduate volunteers. And if you've got a co-ed pool of volunteers, it would have made it easier to do experiments that examined gender differences. And Trufen and Wong show that in psychology, the increase in gender-related papers does indeed stem primarily from experimental papers. The takeaway, then, is that representation matters. When a group previously excluded from research enters, it may carry with it research priorities that are better aligned with the needs of that excluded group. Fortunately, as those ideas enter the bloodstream of a research community, it looks like the priorities do get taken up more widely. But we remain a long way from gender parity in most of research. A paper by Holman, Stuart Fox, and Hauser from 2018 examines the rate at which the gender gap in science is closing. Across 115 disciplines that published to the PubMed or Archive paper repositories, 87 had fewer than 45% women authors in 2016. In almost every one of these fields, the share of women was increasing over time, but the current rate in most cases was slow enough that it could be well over a decade for authors to come within 45%, and in some fields, much longer than a decade. And when we look at more senior positions, it'll be longer still. Finally, there's no reason to believe similar dynamics don't play out with other underrepresented groups, and it would be great if we had more papers documenting that as well. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation and accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.